Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before we get started today, I want to list the top 10 episodes of Econ Talk for 2013 as voted by you, the listeners. I really appreciated all the feedback and personal information that you gave me along with your votes, and here are the top 10 episodes. There was a tie for first, a literal, actual tie, Lamav on teaching, and David Epstein on the sports gene. They both tied for first. Third place was Kling on the three languages of politics. Fourth, Taleb on skin in the game. Fifth, Curry on climate change. Six, Munger on milk. Seven, Thurman on bees. Eight, Munger on sports norms. Nine, Oster on pregnancy. And 10, Pallada on charity. Thanks again. We'll do that again for 2014. And now for today's guest. Today is February 10th, 2014. My guest is Moises Velasquez-Manoff, author of the remarkable book, An Epidemic of Absence, A New Way of Understanding Allergies and Autoimmune Disease, which is the subject of today's podcast. Moises, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. And this book was recommended recommended to me by a listener, Santiago Alonzo Lord. I'm sorry I missed it the first two times around in hardcover and paperback, but I'm sure glad I found it. Uh, it for better or for worse, it vindicates a lot of my dad's views of the world, uh, as, as we'll see as we go on. It's always hard, for, sometimes hard for a son to accept. Uh, <laughs> but my dad was was not obsessed with cleanliness and germs. Uh, and it turns out, as your book points out, that this uh, may be sometimes surprisingly a good thing. Uh, this is an incredible book. It's from the cutting edge of medicine and science, uh, equally valuable. It is written without hysteria or overconfidence, which is rare. And although it's a book about disease, it deals with many issues that arise here on Econ Talk, as listeners will notice. Let's begin. Moises, what are autoimmune diseases and what has happened to their prevalence along with allergies over the last century or so? Well, they've uh, they've increased very precipitously. Um and so an autoimmune disease is when your immune system, which you normally think of as protecting you against things like, you know, the common cold or, or just regular infections, um, that your immune system actually turns on some aspect of you, of your own body. So uh, I actually have an autoimmune disease called alopecia areata, where my immune system has essentially turned against my hair follicles and uh, rendered them, rendered me hairless for the most part. Um, and an allergy is a slightly different thing. An allergy is when your immune system turns against some protein in the environment um, that probably does not pose a real threat. Like in this case, I think peanuts are maybe the best example because they've become so prevalent. Um, but so then the reaction to the protein becomes injurious to you. Uh, and again, peanuts are a good example where people can go into anaphylactic shock and their airways close up and they can die from encountering this 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 sort of innocuous uh, substance in the environment, which really poses no threat. It's a mistake of the immune system. All these diseases have increased in the developed world, especially in the late 20th century, probably earlier, but people were busy with wars in the early 20th century, um, definitely in the late 20th century. And um, 
you know, allergies between two and threefold in developed worlds, maybe more. Uh, and autoimmune disease, depending on which one, you know, up to celiac is between four and fivefold about. Uh, celiac is, is a sort of autoimmune disease that's triggered by a protein in wheat and other grains called gluten. Um, you know, there's multiple sclerosis, inflammatory bowel disease. These are all sort of broadly included under the category of autoimmune and inflammatory diseases. And one of the reasons I found the book so fascinating is that I think anybody roughly my age, I'm 59, anybody my age has noticed this increase in things like peanut allergies. And we think, well, my first thought, I have to confess as, a, as an economist is, well, this is just a measurement issue. This is something that you know, wasn't diagnosed before. We thought it was something else. And, and this explains, I thought, lots of phenomena that that seem to have increased in the last 10, 20, 30, 50 years. Another example might be autism. Uh, we're just – we get to doctors more. The doctors know more. We have more classifications. And so things that got ignored before, misclassified, got classified correctly. That's always been my suspicion. And after reading your book, that suspicion is wrong. Uh, explain why. Well, there are several ways to um, to deal with that problem, which I think is a real problem. And some of some of the measured increase, I think, is probably almost invariably due to just improved diagnosis. Um, on the other hand, if you can go to populations right now that live side by side um, and see very different prevalences of of allergic disease by objective measures, and usually in allergic disease, there are um, there's two ways of measuring, really. One is by doing a skin prick test, which is basically we take a little bit of allergen like pollen that, that people are often allergic to and prick the skin and sort of rub it in there. And uh, then you, you see the resulting wheel, which is like a little swelling. Um, and that's a measurement uh, of the allergic tendencies of that person. The other way is even more direct, and that's simply to measure the the allergic antibody um, that, that someone has. So to have an allergic disease, you have to have this antibody to that substance that is that binds to that substance, sort of directs your immune system to that substance. In this case, let's say, again, peanuts, because um, it's an easy example. So you have IgE that's specific to peanuts. That's immunoglobulin E. It's a kind of antibody. So you can measure that directly. If you have it, you're, you, you have a propensity to be allergic to peanuts. If you don't, you don't have that. And so you can go to populations living side by side um, usually exposed to different environments and see that the prevalence of these antibodies and the prevalence of those uh, of a positive skin prick test, of those wheels, of those swellings are very different. Um, and there are different populations. I go through a number of them where this observation has been made in the late 20th and early 21st century and is still being made. And it's sort of like the, the, the big detective question, the big mystery is what is different about the two environments when you have people who are often genetically the same in the sense that they, they come from the same ancestral population and yet have these very different propensities to, to develop allergic disease. And I mentioned my age because when I was in first grade in 1960, which was a long time ago, nobody had peanut allergies. We never heard about it. It was, it was unheard of. <laughs> yeah. So the question is, were people dropping dead then? Because, but they didn't know it was a peanut allergy because somebody brought out a sandwich or, or somebody yeah. put something in a sandwich that somebody didn't know about. And the answer apparently is uh, no, actually, people are more allergic to peanuts than they were in 1960, which is hard to understand because evolution goes very slowly. We tend to think, what could be really so different about how my body reacts to peanuts? But of course, as you point out, it's more than just peanut allergies. It's cat allergies. It's hay fever. It's asthma. It's... Uh, inflammatory bowel disease. It's 
uh, multiple sclerosis. There are these a number of factors that have increased. And I think most – if you ask most people and I think a lot of doctors until recently what the cause of those increased were, they say, well, it's pollution. They look for things obviously that have changed over the last 50 years. You have to – you look for a – Something that's correlated with it. It's pollution. It's uh, chemicals in the environment. And though they may have some role, as you point out toward the end of the book, uh, the shocking claim is something else. And that is the essence of your book. And what is that? Right. So uh, starting, let's say, about two decades ago, people started asking not what was added to the environment, which, as you say, is a sort of logical way to pursue this question, um, you know, going by history. Uh but what had been removed from the environment that might have prevented the emergence of these diseases? Um, and, you know, there, this, this is an old hypothesis, actually, that goes back farther than most people realize. Back to the 1960s, even people were making observations that, for example, um, if you grew up without a, a toilet, but, you know, sort of an, used an outhouse, that your risk of, some, of multiple sclerosis was lower. I mean, what a mystery. That's very bizarre. At that point, it was Seems kind of like- Seems like a spurious correlation is what you'd assume. It's correlated with something about income, or you know, it's not yeah, to do with the toilet. Ex- exactly, exactly. I mean, it, what's what's funny about that is it might literally be the the toilet, the sanitary amenities that are important. But the the sort of to get back to the history of this idea, the hygiene hypothesis, which I think is a horrible phrase, and I'll get into later, but and a lot of other people do too. But we'll use it anyways because everyone else does. Um, is sort of born in 1989 with a paper uh, by epidemiologist David Strachan, who's British. Um, actually, he may be Scottish, but he's working in Britain. He looks at, a, at tens of thousands of birth records of people born, uh, as I recall, in the 50s. It's been a while since I read the paper, but in the 50s, and then looks at what correlated, what correlations he can make with a childhood that predicted their adult risk of of hay fever. And what he finds is that of, I think it was. Um, over 10, if I'm recalling correctly, 17 variables that he looks at, uh, what, he reca- what he finds is that the single variable that correlates with protection is how many other kids are in the house when, they, when um, these kids are, are, are infants or very young. So the more other kids there are, the lower their risk of hay fever when they're in their early 20s. So that's very odd, right? So he says, well, it's probably infections. If there are a lot of other kids around, you get, uh, you're more likely to get infections. It's sort of like an amplifier of contagion. Um, and that's invariably true. But then in the subsequent decade, people are looking for the infection and they can't identify an infection. And what has happened sort of like with this explosion of, of research on the microbiome, um, which is really in the last decade, the last five years especially. And define um, that. Define what is, a, what is the microbiome? The microbiome is the collection of microbes that actually lives inside of us. Um, so our, our microbes in our body right now actually outnumber our cells by a factor of 10 to 1. There are 10 times as many microbes as, as eukaryotic cells, as your cells. That's because they're a lot smaller than your cells. And that's why they all fit. In your, and they most of them live in your gut, but they're really all over the surface of your body. Um, and what's there has very important implications for how your immune system works. It sort of calibrates your immune system. And there's lots of suspicion that it's sort of changed over the course of the 20th century in particular for many reasons. One is you just simply don't inherit the same microbes because you're not exposed to them. And that's due to improved sanitation and to, interestingly, smaller families, possibly just less crowding. So that was sort of what David Strachan was seeing all those years ago, was, was that there was this correlation with large family size protecting against the younger kids. Um, so 
that's one direction that all this research is now pointing in. So the hygiene hypothesis basically starts as this thinking about infections. At this point, no one really, well, very few people, I should say, really think um, that infections of the type that David Strachan was talking about, which were colds and maybe measles and that kind of thing, uh, really protect. And that's simply because they can't get a signal of protection when they sort of do these epidemiological studies. What has been consistent is that kids who grow up with other kids very young um, are protected. And so they think it's more of a microbiome effect. Kids who also grow up with animals, dogs in particular, uh, seem to be protected. Kids who grow up on farms seem to be protected. Kids who grow up in situations uh, where they have, as I mentioned, not very good sanitary amenities seem to be protected. Uh, and so these things are, are probably all markers for a transmission of microbes so that they end up, you have to think of it as an ecosystem. And in ecosystem science, uh, a more diverse ecosystem is, more, is stronger and more robust than a less diverse ecosystem. And for, for probably some of the same reasons, it seems that the diversity of our internal microbiome, of our internal ecosystem of microbes, actually is better for our health. The more diverse it is, the better. Now, there are, of course, um, people coming up with data you know, every you you come up with a rule, and then immediately someone comes up with data that suggests that it's not true. So that's already emerging. But I think for now, that's holding as a rule. And really, what what scientists want to discover is which sort of keystone species. So, like if you look at the African savanna, it's sort of shaped by certain species, like the elephant. They just keep it more savanna-like by trampling trees, and 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 uh, they have an outsized impact. So they're probably keystone microbes in our on and in our body that are especially important for our immune calibration. And the, the, the trick is to figure out which ones they are so we can create some sort of probiotic. Um, and then also to figure out when we need to have contact with them because timing is clearly extremely important. If you, you, know, if you are an adult and you go hang out with a bunch of, uh, you go start, you know, you go to a place where it's there's not very good sanitary amenities. It's not really going to help your allergies. You know, not, it's not good for you. Go yeah. yeah. The hard part about this book and this these hypotheses is that the 20th century is a great triumph of of knowledge and medicine, uh, both in terms of cleanliness and hygiene, sewage, all kinds of things like that, but also antibiotics, the elimination of all kinds of horrific diseases that kill people. Through yeah. vaccination and also treatment, we've gotten, we really understand a lot of things we didn't understand 100 years ago. But what your book argues and what this science is suggesting is that we – not that we necessarily did too much, but that this, this improvement came at a very uh, large price in some, for some people. So talk about let's, – let's, um, let's talk about worms. Uh, and by the way, if you're eating uh, during this podcast, which I know some listeners do um, – <laughs> The book is not – and this and this conversation may not always be conducive to digestion. I just want to mention that up front. Uh, it's um, – for somebody who's a little squeamish as I am, uh, talking about worms and giving yourself worms on purpose, which is part of our conversation, is a little bit difficult to take. But be prepared. Um, and a spoiler alert. So uh, Moise says, talk about uh, why the removal of worms from our systems – we're talking here about hookworms, tapeworms, and other pinworms. Uh, why is that possibly a bad thing? Yeah, 
Right. So, well, let me just address one thing you said there, because I, I feel like sometimes I don't want this to be unclear. And that is that vaccines are good for us um, for many reasons, clearly because they, they've helped with infant mortality, probably being the, the greatest reason, but also because the organisms that, that protect us are not the same ones that we vaccinate against necessarily. So we vaccinate against polio and measles. Those, none of those, of those infections have shown up to be protective. So in other words, it's possible to keep the bad at bay of the, of the world of yore, which is the world that, uh, you know, that of the late 19th century, say, where it was a high infectious load and, and in poor families, at least, you know, one in five children dies before age one. Um, to, to keep the improvements that we've had, which are tremendous and monumental and, and have changed human existence and still address this problem. So and still keep our vaccines. So I just want to be clear on that point. Now, for worms, the deal with worms, parasites, is that if you look around the animal kingdom, every animal has an array of parasites that they've co-evolved with. It seems that it's impossible to exist on this earth without being parasitized simply because parasites can out-evolve you. They, their lifespan, their, their procreative life cycle is less than yours typically. So, you know, for hookworms, say, depending on the species, uh, you can, it's, it lives just a few years. And so it can keep evolving whatever you live, you know, if you're lucky, you live uh, 60 years. You can't evolve as quickly as a worm can evolve. So basically you're stuck with a few. They're there and, they, and what they do to survive inside of your body is they tweak your immune system. It's one of their tricks. They convince your immune system that they belong. And the way they do that is by inducing some of the, the cells, um, some of the sort of the mechanisms that help you tolerate things. So that, for example, if you don't have a peanut allergy and you eat peanuts, um, it's not that your immune system is ignorant of the peanut. It's that your immune system sees the peanut and tolerates it. It's not a big deal. That's, that's how we want it to be, right? When you have a peanut allergy, the immune system sees the peanut and rejects it and sees it as an enemy. Now, what the parasites do is they convince you to tolerate them and treat it like, like some food that's supposed to be there. That's how they live for years inside of their hosts. And by strengthening that part of your immune system, the thinking goes, they then prevent allergic disease and possibly autoimmune disease from ever emerging. So now you back up for a second and you realize that that kind of tweaking of your immune system was constant throughout, not just our evolution, but through probably most animals' evolution. I mean, it was, it's, it's, you rarely find an animal that's not parasitized by a few parasites at some point in its life. And usually early in life, you're parasitized the most. Um, and that's when, of course, these, these diseases tend to emerge these days in, in, in humans is early in life. But so you have this strengthened, um, let's just call it a part of the immune system that's like a muscle that helps you tolerate things, that helps you not respond, that helps you, let's say if you are a very well-balanced person and people provoke you um, uh, in, in, you know, in a way that you know, could lead to some sort of conflagration, you're just very well-balanced. You have an equilibrium. You don't respond. That's what those parasites help you do. They help, you, they help strengthen that part of your immune system, that aspect of yourself. So then you remove parasites, something that started happening in the late 19th century, but really uh, gathered steam, at least in the developed world, in the early 20th century. And you've removed the influence on that aspect of the immune system that has been there since time immemorial 
Um, and, and, you know, when they do these studies in Africa, say, where populations still are parasitized, where they will take a bunch of kids, they will deworm them and basically measure how their immune function changes uh, before and after. And you see an immediate rebound in allergic reactivity and an immediate decline. So everything that I talk about in terms of, you know, the ability to hold back and the ability to attack your immune system, that is, that corresponds to certain types of immune system molecules. And they can see the, the, the molecules that correspond with holding back, they decline, they go down. Um, the, the sort of whole, whole balance of your immune system changes. The fact that they can see that immediately after deworming suggests that it sort of happened to us historically um, as, a, as a population. In the United States, we don't remember, but you know, half large swaths of the South were parasitized up until you know the 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 1920s 1930s. I mean, they were already supposedly being cleared at that point, but the kids were still had a lot of hookworm in the South, um, and it was a sort of public health triumph that they got rid of all this hookworm. And it, and it, it has we you should mention it. It has worms are not pleasant sometimes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I can tell you from personal experience, but. The, there's no doubt that the, these parasites are not entirely benign. They're taking something from you. I mean, a parasitic lifestyle means that they're essentially stealing from you. They steal nutrients. Um, hookworms actually suck your blood, but there are other parasites that sort of just steal your food. As doesn't, they, it, as, yeah, doesn't it come – you said it comes from the, the Greek word to sit at the table, correct? Yeah. It's a great right. phrase. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're eating with you. You don't realize it because you don't see yeah. them, but they're, they're or, chowing down. That's right. Um, but this is where it's sort of – the way I think about it, actually, I've come to think about it, is sort of uh, the relationship. So there's this, this whole rethinking of the immune system that's going on. We've, te- we've focused on since the advent of germ theory in the 19th century, we focused on the firepower immune system has and how to train your immune system to recognize enemies in advance. That's what a vaccine does. You get some protein that represents measles, say, uh, and you train your immune system to recognize it. So when it sees the actual real thing, it, it fights it off. Um, but there's this other aspect of the immune system that's immensely important, and that's shutting down aggression before it starts harming you because your own aggression uh, can also have sort of uh, collat- cause collateral damage. Like, you know, the, the prime example is, is what happens in, in septic infections where you just sort of every organ begins to shut down because you have this infection. It's not the bacteria necessarily that's shutting down the organ. It's that your immune response has become so overwhelming that your whole body just collapses. Uh, you know, the, the way your organism works just collapses. So there's this whole rethinking now going on about um, tolerance as a survival strategy, recognizing that you can destroy yourself with your own firepower. You know, that, that when, you, when you start throwing grenades and they're they're, they're landing too near you, which they invariably do inside your body, you also harm yourself. And so that controlling that aspect of your immune system is also necessary to survival. Now, what's interesting about parasites is that if you, if you respond, I mean, part of what they're doing is, is tweaking your immune system so that they can live, so that they can survive. But also part of it may be that you have learned through experience, and by experience I mean millions of years of evolution, that if you over-respond to a parasite, which is a very large animal living inside of you, you will destroy yourself. So you hold back. Um, and so one way to think about this is sort of like you've, 
you fought to a kind of standstill. And in, and I always think back to these the uh, the Cold War as an example, uh, where you have two entities that uh, that are at loggerheads with each other. But since neither since war is essentially the enemy, um, there's this frozen state of affairs, right? That 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 ensues, that sort of congeals. Um, and I think that the, the human immune system with parasites is very similar. You sort of end up holding back because, you know, you're, it's like mutually assured destruction if you, if you over-respond. Now, of course, there's, there are nuances here where you are actually responding, but it's a very tightly controlled response. Um, and part of the response is making sure that no other inflammation uh, inflammation being the thing that destroys you here uh, is is able to spread from the site of where you're actually fighting. Like if the worm is a, if it's a hookworm and it's sort of its body, its its mouth is sort of wrapped around some part of your intestine. Um, they're very small; they're about a centimeter, but they're basically eating your the lining of your intestine. Um, and so you're responding at the site, but you're also tightly controlling that, and it's the control. The non-response, the the anti-inflammatory, the, the ability to hold back, that then is important for not over-responding to other proteins in the environment. So we're going to get to this eventually. I just want to let list, alert listeners to the fact that there are actually people, um, Moises is one of them, who, who deliberately introduce worms into their body to uh, reduce their autoimmune disorders with some success. We'll see whether it's real or not. We'll, we'll talk about that. But the metaphor that I liked uh, when, when in thinking about this is the leaning against the wall. So you're leaning against a wall, and then all of a sudden the wall disappears and you fall over. The problem with that is it's a metaphor. So you know the proof is in the science, not the storytelling, which uh, which is what makes medicine and science potentially better than economics sometimes. So talk about let's take a couple examples of where people have gone in depth to look at some of these phenomena. Talk about Sardinia, uh, the island of Sardinia off the coast of Italy, and what happened with malaria there. Yeah, so uh, Sardinia had it was endemic for malaria for possibly for for millennia, at least since the uh, the Carthaginians, perhaps before. They usually blame it on the 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 arrival of the Carthaginians who came from North Africa. Um, uh, so that's over 2,000 years of malaria. Uh, I think it's, as I recall, it's around 3,000 actually. But in any case, it's a very isolated population. They haven't interbred with other people. And so they've been sort of – their genome has been shaped by the constant just picking of malaria, the constant uh, uh, you know, basically killing of the people who could not survive malaria. So – Malaria basically was eradicated in, in the 40s, after World War II, that is, in, in the space of just a few years. They went in with DDT um, and sprayed the whole island. They sprayed a lot of DDT, which is another story. But then, then people who had evolved, in theory, with malaria suddenly no longer had it. And then, which, which sounds, again, like a good thing. It's, a, it's great. Now, we say it is they, a good thing. We, you say they evolved to survive it, but of course it still killed people. Especially children, I assume, and, and older people. So the amazing thing about this thing that makes it so challenging to me is it's extremely um, – it's uncertain. It's not black and white. It's not a switch that goes on and off. So they, they had evolved these these genetic responses to malaria, and, and they were fabulous for most people. And now, 
well, we don't need them anymore. That's good because people aren't going to die from malaria. They're not going to get sick. They're not going to be, you know, harmed by it. So that seems like a good thing. But what happened? Two autoimmune diseases started increasing dramatically, multiple sclerosis and uh, type 1 diabetes. It's now number two in the world for type 1 diabetes, uh, for the prevalence. Uh, type 1 diabetes is when your immune system turns against your, your pancreas, which produces insulin for your body. Um, and, and then uh, multiple sclerosis, it's very high. It's abnormally high for that latitude. Multiple sclerosis tends to increase the higher the latitudes, so like Canada and Scotland have very high rates. Uh, supposedly places like Italy are supposed to have intermediate rates, um, but the closer you look, that sort of rule does not seem to apply. In any case, Sardinia is this hotbed of autoimmune disease. And so there's some thinking now because it literally, because there's like this year zero when they eradicate malaria. Um, there's some thinking that the malaria does something similar to what the worms do. That is a chronic malaria infection, uh, not the acute phase when you first get it and you can get very sick. But a chronic malaria infection suppresses your immune system. So if you evolved with this constant immune suppression, uh, then you suddenly remove it. It's going to reveal things to, to, uh, to natural selection, that, meaning that it's going to possibly create uh, new diseases. But in this case, the twist is that the very, the very tendencies in the immune system that produce that produce autoimmune disease in the absence of malaria may have actually helped manage the infection, may have actually helped fight off malaria when it's present. So this is a, this is a very important broader lesson that, first of all, it tells us what autoimmune disease is. Or that is what some of the genetic uh, components of autoimmune disease, what they're good for. You know, autoimmune disease is not, uh, it's the, the genes associated with it are very widespread in the population, in, in, in the human population, that is. And when, when geneticists sort of look at how prevalent they are, it seems like they've actually become more prevalent in the past 15,000 years or so, which suggests that they have some use. I mean, so autoimmune disease is very costly. It's a, it's a huge cost of fitness. If we're looking at this from a, a point of view of natural selection, they should be deselected for. Those genes should be constantly removed from the population, not not enriched. But what they see is that they're enriched, suggesting two things. One, they're good for something. And two, possibly, at least in my interpretation, they probably did not cause the same disease that they do now uh, in the modern environment. And then we have this example of, of Sardinia, where basically in 60 years, we have seen that, uh, that, that we don't know exactly what the genes are in that case, uh, but that autoimmune disease that was before very, very almost non-existent has gone up to some of the highest rates in the world in the space of like two or three generations. Um, and, and then there's this, this coincidence of timing with the eradication of malaria. Of course, I should point out that with the eradication of malaria, it's sort of the arrival of modernity. And it's everything else that I talk about also happens uh, sure. when they eradicate malaria. So they, they lose their worms, they, they, lose, they get better sanitation, they, their food becomes more sterile. You know, everything happens at once. It just happened very quickly there. Right. So, and just to get a feel for the magnitudes, it, again, it's not like it's all complicated. It's not like every single person on the island all, all of a sudden has diabetes or multiple sclerosis. The rates for multiple sclerosis, if I remember, are about triple what they are on the Italian mainland, which is an enormous increase. It's, but it's not everybody. It's not everybody who gets it. No, that's right. Yeah. It was, as I recall, about one in, uh, uh, you know, I need, I need to fact check this, but I think it was around one in 700 or something like that. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember. But the 
the um, it's not just the timing, right? They understand something about what fights malaria and, and its prevalence in people. So, for example, on the island, people at higher altitudes on the island have are less prone to malaria because the mosquitoes don't go up there as much. And they people who are who who have who've lived on those uh, altitudes for for presumably centuries uh, or for at least a long time. Uh, they have less malaria fighting, and they're less likely to get these diabetes and, and MS. Is that correct? Yeah, th- there is that association. So in some of the areas of the – so Sardinia is unusual compared to like Sicily or or Corsica, which are these gigantic mountains that kind of come out of the ocean very dramatically. Sardinia is kind of f- flat and marshy. In some, There are mountains. There are these the areas – where uh, where the mountains come up, but otherwise it's the hydrology is very unique and it's very conducive to mosquitoes. <laughs> um, so they they were unusually prone to having malaria once it arrived, and so in those areas where the malaria intensity seemed to be the greatest in the past, they see this sort of enrichment of some of the of some of the um, the HL. These are these are these are genes that also predispose to autoimmune disease. Put it simply, um, but it's it's very minor. The, it, what's interesting though about th- that uh, example you raised is that up the mountain um, there is another trait that's also important in fighting malaria called uh, it's called thalassemia. That's the disease it causes. It's a kind of anemia, congenital anemia, where it's this thing uh, where you get two copies from each parent, then you get the anemia. But if you get just one copy, then you're protected from cerebral malaria, which is the one, the, the kind of malaria that kills you. So those genes do become less prevalent as you go up the mountain. And that was sort of the, you know, a seminal bit of work that was done actually in Sardinia in the, uh, in the mid 20th century showing that disease had had this impact on the human genome in a way that was measurable. Um, but there are likely many adaptations to malaria because it's such a complicated pathogen and so wily in so many ways and so costly. You know, it, it'll kill you. So it's a very strong selective force. So let's talk about the hookworm underground and how it got started. Uh, tell us what it is, uh, this phenomenon of people injecting themselves deliberately with with various types of parasites and why did anyone start to think that was a good idea yes yeah, so i'll back up so uh in the 90s and people started thinking about some of the parasite questions that i've been talking about mostly from because they understood the immunology and they understood that parasites suppress your immune system and they began to say and they noticed also in populations that were parasitized these diseases were far less prevalent so they began to think well how about we deliberately introduce parasites as a way to cure some of these diseases. It's an outrageous idea. But then uh, a, a gastroenterologist named Joel Weinstock, who's now at Tufts, developed a parasite that, and medicalized it so that it was in theory safe. The parasite is native to pigs. And the reason he chose this parasite is because it cannot reproduce sexually in, in humans, so that you give it to the person and no one else gets it. That's the idea. I mean, you, we, the context, the historical context is we spent lots of money in this country getting rid of parasites. The last thing you want to do is reintroduce them to the population. And, and right? you talk about how when people would suggest these transmission mechanisms for allergies and autoimmune problems, the outrage that many in the medical profession, the science, uh, in the fields of science had to, to the idea that there was something beneficial about this scourge that we had we had eliminated, yeah, and, and right. it's hard to it is it's difficult to accept, right? It's very un, it's it's emotionally unpleasant, but intellectually, it's deeply disturbing. It's like being told, oh, we always were told to wash our hands, 
right, that that's good for you. And doctors are really should wash their hands. But it turns out maybe sometimes dirty hands are good for you. That's that's horrifying. As you say, right. it's, it's outrageous. So so what happened with um, with this pig worm? Well, so he developed it into a meta, you know, he, this is actually in testing right now for FDA approval. Um, and I should point out that some of the results, the, the early results were amazing. They were so impressive. It was something like, uh, it, it was like three dozen people and a 75% remission rate for Crohn's disease, right? Uh, it was unbelievable. And now, they're, now it's in testing and some of the results have been very lackluster so far. So we don't really know if it works yet. But in any case, um, a bunch of underground people are reading this science. I mean, this is published in reputable journals. It makes sense to a certain kind of mindset that's sort of ecologically and holistically oriented. And if you uh, and so, if you have a chronic disease, you'd love to you try have, something different that whatever, if whatever you've been trying isn't working reasonably, right? A, absolutely. I mean, I think actually at some point it's a rational. It is very rational choice where everything else has failed, or maybe you you see uh, you see problems with some of the available therapies like the TNF inhibitors, which can increase the risk of infection and some cancers and stuff. I mean, usually those are much bigger in people's minds than they are in reality, but still it, you, you perceive it as a gigantic threat. That is, you can take uh, one of, you know, um, a Remicade or something, and then your risk of some of these other life-ending events goes up, right? So you say, okay, well, here's a parasite. We, and you read all the literature and you say, oh, the parasites have been with us forever. They're actually benign. And then you find out that there are some people who now sell them uh, for deliberate infection in an underground way. You have to go to Mexico. And uh, then there's all these amazing sort of remarkable stories of remission that you can find all over the internet. Um, and then you say, okay, well, you know, I'm going to try it because what do I have to lose? And I think that's actually, in some cases, a rational decision. But I do also think that there's this tendency to ignore, first of all, the bad news isn't up there because it's not being promoted by the people who are selling this stuff. Uh, that is the cases that did not turn out so well. And also all the caveats and, and bad possibilities are totally ignored because there's this desperation that's driving people to do this. The other part that's, I think... Um, it, it comes out. You don't you don't talk about it explicitly, but dosage is always going to be challenging. There's always an issue of how many, how much, uh, which worm to take. Um, so there's a lot of inevitable trial and error. That some of that's going to fail and have some really unpleasant side effects. Why don't you talk about your own experience and why why you did what you did and how you did went about it? Right. So well to c connect the dots here. The pig whipworm stuff start, is sort of the inspiration. Then another fellow at the University of Nottingham in the UK, uh, he starts experimenting with hookworm because that's what he studied his whole life. Uh, and, you know, it's same observation in, in Papua New Guinea. Everyone has hookworm naturally. There's very little, low rate of all these diseases. He's studying the immuno. And I should point out that also the animal studies are, are universally suggest that, almost universally, I should say, suggest that that if you have a parasite infection, not only does it prevent these diseases, it possibly can treat it, right? So you have a lot of evidence access as possible. Anyways, they start experimentally infecting people at the University of Nottingham. In fact, they start with themselves. There's a whole, you know, about seven scientists who start infecting themselves just to see what happens, uh, which is interesting in its own right. Brave. And it's sort of based on that, that this underground movement starts flirting. I mean, that you say, look, these scientists are willing to do it. It can't be that bad. And that was sort of actually not They don't know anything about scientists, uh, obviously. But yeah, I, hear, I take the point. Our scientists do a lot of things to get a, a breakthrough, right? To, to be 
to be associated with some incredible uh, increase in knowledge, and that they're willing to accept the downside, which could be death. But um, yeah. So go ahead, carry on. And so uh, I sort of decided. Well, so there are these underground operations that are that are uh, that are selling this thing for and i've i've interviewed at this point you know probably over a dozen people who've had amazing success also some people who haven't had that great success and i decide to go join them both as a sort of gonzo reporting expedition um number one number two to sort of test the idea of what having a parasite is really like you know from one camp i've you know the sort of the traditional um, public health people are saying they're horrible. It's a scourging humanity. They make people stuck. They, they make kids not go to school. They make people, they, they retire, brain develop. All those things uh, I think are true. Um, and then there's this other So side we're not saying, just for the record, for those listeners out there, uh, this is not uh, advice uh, section of the, oh. of the episode here. We're, we're, we're telling a historical episode in Moises's life. Go ahead, Moises. And Alexi, I do not recommend that people follow my lead at all. Um, I, I recommend that, that, that people be very cautious about how they proceed with the amazing stories that they can find all over the internet. Um, okay, but in any case, I decided to test this. And I'm also curious because I have food allergies and uh, hay fever and, and this autoimmune disease. And I'm curious to see what effect it's going to have. Um, so, and of course, I'm aware that other humans have have done this voluntarily. That you also have you also have alopecia. Yeah, explain what that is, and that's why that's relevant. Uh, it's in. I believe I, I mentioned this earlier, but it's a it's a autoimmune disease where your immune system turns against your hair follicles. Uh, and I've had it since age 11. It starts as a few sort of bald patches on my head. At least it did for me. And then those bald patches multiply and expand. And for me, they've left me mostly hairless for most of my life. Um, I didn't expect that to go away. What I really thought, though, judging from some of the, the studies on animals and humans, was that maybe I'd lose my food allergies. Um, and that, that was really exciting to me. Actually, the thing that bothers me the most out of everything I have is my peanut allergy and my sesame allergy um, in the sense that you, know, you don't know always what's in your food and sometimes you get some of the stuff and then you have to go, for me, you know, I go uh, eject forcefully. Um, in any case... So I, I go down to Tijuana, and you actually don't inject yourself with these parasites. What happens is the the larvae, which are microscopic, you cannot see them. You they go through your skin, and they have this kind of amazing journey through your body, where they end up in your small intestine a few weeks later. Um, I think it's worse that you don't inject them. Actually, you you put them you put them basically over over your skin, and you feel them going in, right? Yeah, well, they inject some sort of uh, various enzymes that uh, essentially digest your skin so they can wiggle through it. Lovely. Um, I mean, you know, if you, if you look at these things dispassionately, they're really marvels of evolution. Like, I mean, how did they, they come up with this life cycle, which is – and how do they end up reliably in the, same, in the right place? Uh, yeah, they, know, don't, they don't have GPS. It's true. It's a great point, actually. I didn't ever think about it. They just, we just take it for granted that they wander in and they end up in your intestine. But that's extraordinary. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And one of the dangers of parasites generally and one of the critiques of Joel Weinstock's pig whipworms is that parasites that are, na- are usually very specific to their hosts. So that the hookworm is native to humans. That hookworm is native to humans. It can do this amazing voyage through the body without really ending up in the wrong place. But oftentimes when animals end up with parasites that are not native to them, 
it can kill them because they end up migrating to the wrong place, uh, to the brain, to the central nervous system, to the liver, you know, they just, and they cause horrific disease where if they were in their native host, they cause very minor, or I should say relatively minor um, symptoms, right? And, so and turning out badly, of course, is both for the host and the parasite. The parasite does not want to kill you. That's bad for it's, the parasite because then not, it has no, no host. Exactly. I mean, that's what's so this is not like, uh, let's say, the plague or like smallpox where it, it, it multiplies exponentially in a very short period of time with the idea of jumping to another host and leaving you as a sort of used up husk. What the, the, the strategy of these parasites is to live for years. They just want to taste. They just, they don't want the whole meal. They, they're at your table. They just, can I have, have another bite? Yeah. Can I try <laughs> well, that? Yeah. Right. Exactly. But with hookworms, they're actually eating you, which you, I can tell mm-hmm. you, you feel um, in the sense that you feel this kind of ache. But okay. So there were, there were these very interesting, um, well, not so interesting side effects that uh, they're sort of what you'd expect if there's a, there are these things that are kind of latching themselves on to your small intestine, which is a little ache and some, you know, uh, effluence. That stuff sort of faded with time, never entirely the ache anyways. But what was remarkable is that my hay fever went away completely for about half of the hay fever season. My eczema went away. Um, my hair did not grow back. My food allergies did not go away. And so there was, I saw some sort of tweaking of the immune system. Um, but for me, it did not, the, the, the costs did not outweigh the benefits. For me, actually, the whole experiment worked more as a way of sort of showing that everyone who's talking about parasites from both the pro and the con side, they're both right. Yes, it's true that parasites manipulate the immune system. I can, I can feel it or that is I can observe it um, in, a, you know, in a sample size of one. But uh, it's sort of, it's, it's supported by all, this animal, all these animal studies. Um, and yes, it's also true that they have a cost and you can feel that as well. Now, I interviewed people who didn't have any symptoms and there's some evidence from experimental, from Australian um, scientists who are experimenting with hookworm to treat celiac disease, interestingly. But they self, they infected themselves. And it seems like that the harder your immune system pushes back, the fewer worms you end up with, but also the more it kind of hurts you. So really what's hurting you is your own immune response, which ties back into what I was talking about earlier where your immune response is what hurts. Um, so I, maybe I was someone who had a sort of very overwhelming immune response. I don't recommend it. It was interesting. I've, I've interviewed plenty of people for whom it sort of made the difference between progressing, let's say, multiple sclerosis or other terrible autoimmune diseases and, and sort of just bringing those things to grounding them to a halt. So it's possibly beneficial. That's in the works being tested in a scientifically rigorous way, which is what we need. I think ideally what's going to happen is that scientists will, will either, one, they will isolate the molecules these parasites use to, to subvert your immune system and just create drugs out of those. Or two, they will breed a kind of benign parasite that has no cost and all benefit. And the best example is sort of like, you know, the chihuahua is descended from the gray wolf. They're very closely related genetically, but they look very differently. They act very differently around you. And the idea would be to breed a parasite that is to its ancestors what the chihuahua is to the gray wolf, which is all cuddly cuteness and goodness and none of the savagery and ferocity of the actual wild thing. Yeah, um, I, I think I, I was told that um, if you need a heart valve replacement, you can, get, you can either get a, one from a pig, which is evidently somewhat like ours, or you can get a plastic one. 
Right. And what we need are these and the penguins tend to tend to work better. They don't last as long, but they work right. better evidently. So what we need is the plastic worm <laughs> that works better. Uh that's more like the real worm, but it's 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 emotionally um uh, easier to deal with as well. Before we leave this topic, though, uh, tell the story of um, what happened in Buenos Aires when their economy collapsed. Because again, I, you know, if, if you're a highly skeptical person, which which I often am on this program, although occasionally I get sucked in by a book like this and I want to believe every page. I just want to confess to that to the listeners. Because when you get a paradigm shift like this, it's like, oh, okay, now I know the truth. And you have to always fight your impulse and as a journalist i know you do too to say oh well, i found the truth now it's all here and again i yeah. want to emphasize that in the book uh, moises is very careful about some of the claims he makes and that and that what we know and how limited it is and, and the complexity of this problem which again reminds me uh, a great deal of economics but i, I love the buenos aires story as a as a great uh confirmation bias case for me who's susceptible to it uh talk yeah. about what happened well, so the, the, the economy was in turmoil and basically there was, this is in the early 2000s, um, there was some sanitary backsliding. You know, people stopped picking up trash, uh, the sewer maybe stopped working. And what happened is there was a neurology clinic there that served some of the poor neighborhoods, uh, the people from poor neighborhoods, lots of multiple sclerosis patients. And multiple sclerosis is, for the listeners, is basically when your immune system attacks the fatty coating of your neurons, and it's, it sort of causes this creeping paralysis. Um, and the, the coating is called myelin. So it's an autoimmune disease where you're attacking some aspect of your, of your central nervous system. Uh, some of those patients started showing up with parasite infections because of this sanitary backsliding that was happening, that was occurring in this broader context of economic turmoil. And so this, this, uh, these neurologists, uh, Jorge Corriale, um, he knew about Joel Weinstock's work. He knew also about this sort of revisionist thinking on parasites that there was this evolutionary component that maybe they'd always been there sort of applying pressure to our immune system and that they, uh, they could sort of strengthen your immune system's ability to not overreact. And so he gave his, his patients a choice. He said, look, we can keep the worms or that is I can deworm you or we can keep the worms and we'll see what happens. So some of his patients decided to keep the worms. I think it was about 14, um, but I, I should... Yeah, I think you said, said a dozen. Yeah, something. it was something around there. Um, it's been a while, but so uh, the, 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 Still the patients... Still a small sample, but bigger than one. Yes, very small sample. But bigger um, than one. Again... The, the, the reason that some of this stuff is even considered in humans, of course, is that it's first shown in animals. Animals are obviously way far more conclusive. Again, though, rodents are not people, as we well know. And often what happens, what seems to work in animals does not work in people. Uh, but at that point, I think there were a number of rodent studies that showed that parasites could have this kind of magical effect to stop a number of autoimmune diseases. Um, um, and in that case, it was they just used like an extract of one of the parasite eggs for, for the multiple sclerosis uh, analog in animals. In any case, so the, it, the, what happens essentially is that the, the multiple sclerosis, which is this kind of advancing disease, comes to an almost complete halt. It doesn't completely stop, but it almost completely stops. And this is viewable by objective measures, by um, magnetic resonance imaging. He also does blood work and then he, he monitors them for about five years. Uh, and then some of his patients are 
are sick of having parasites. They're sick of the side effects. And so he dewormed some of his patients. Um, and I think at that their request. was at their request. And he, the whole time he's been taking blood samples, measuring the, the, the cytokines, which are immune system transmitters or immune system molecules that sort of give you a gauge of, you know, if you're in an inflamed state, if you're not in an inflamed state. In any case, what he sees is that the, the whole balance of the immune system shifts from, from pre-deworming to post-deworming, where those molecules that indicate strong anti-inflammatory capacity decline dramatically um, immediately after you deworm. And then the disease started, started right back up again for those patients he dewormed. Now, again, this is not a, an experiment. This is something that occurred naturally. It's observational. What's nice about it is that, is that it's prospective, at least, supported by animal studies. And what's happening now is they're actually testing worm therapy, as it's come to be known, on people with multiple sclerosis, both using the pig whipworm in the United States and using um, hookworm at the University of Nottingham. So we'll know if it really works soon enough. Actually, the prelim- preliminary stuff shows that it works on like four cases uh, by a neurologist named John Fleming at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, so th- that was sort of a, a, you know, you just test it to see if there's any, if there's side effects or, uh, or, or, or negative or serious consequences. What do you mean four cases? Uh, MS patients. Four people who've been so far under this FDA. That's right, under the pig whip Protocol. Order. Yeah. Uh, It's important to mention, by the way, that while the worms have side effects, for most people anyway, uh, the current state of treatment for most of these autoimmune disorders also have side effects or there's no treatment. That's absolutely right. These are very, very difficult diseases to treat, number one. Um, You know, the the people who, who created the drugs that are available will probably argue that they're your best bet. Uh, but a lot of people just don't respond to the available drugs. And there are, there are sort of, they, a lot of them work on the, um, not the ones for MS, but for the other inflammatory diseases. They basically block some aspect of your ability to be inflamed. So TNF alpha, tumor necrosis factor alpha is this thing that helps you mount a very strong attack against pathogens, right? It also uh, is activated inappropriately in autoimmune disease. So they essentially block that. Um, but then that increases the risk of some infections because you've basically hobbled an aspect of your immune system. Now, I should also point out that parasite infection also increases the risk of other infections because it does the same thing by different mechanisms. It's suppressing some aspect of your immune system. But as far as anyone knows, it doesn't increase the risk of some of the, um, of some of the cancers that the, the tumor necrosis factor alpha um, some of those because so your immune system is also important for for catching cancers before they grow and spread so if you hobble some aspect of your immune system you may increase the risk of some of some cancers and it's a very very tiny increased risk but it is there it exists for for these uh for these current drugs i think what's most important is that people who have these diseases perceive the risk to be very terrifying and very great whether it is or whether it isn't they say, I have this disease and here I'm going to take this drug that increases the risk of two other problems that are life-ending problems that are not small, you know, they're not yeah. trivial problems. The absolute risk of that happening to them is very small, but it looms very large in their imagination. I think Rightfully that- so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, it, it just it's, – it, it skews the calculus where – 
parasites you can get rid of if you, they're not working for you. In theory, you can just uh, take some deworming drug. You take a one day or two day course, you know, and you get rid of them in a second. In theory, again, um, so it's in terms of the cost benefit analysis. I feel like people who are facing these diseases, in a way, they're making the most rational decision. I mean, yeah. you're, you know, you're an economist. You, 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 you it's like. It, Rationality depends on what the other factors are, right? It's, it's all about trade-offs, and, and one of the exactly. lessons of this book, which is really extraordinary, is the there's no free lunch. Uh, it just keeps it. I don't think I'm pretty sure that phrase doesn't appear in the book, but that's really one of the lessons of the book. It's everything comes with a side effect, everything comes with a cost, and this incredible health success to take it the macro. We're talking about the micro, an individual trying to make a decision about how to treat a disorder, but at the macro level, when we think about public health. A lot of the great triumphs of the 20th century, which we correctly celebrate, uh, came with an unintended consequences, it appears. And that's uh, – it, it just fascinates me. I want to get back to my dad uh, and we'll get to my mom too. So my dad is uh, – he makes fun of me and, and my siblings because we care about hygiene and keeping our hands clean when we cook. And he'll uh, – just to just to, to get our uh, – to get us going – He'll, he'll walk into a restaurant. He'll eat food off of somebody's plate that's left. You know, he'll walk by a piece of something and just – and he knows it drives us nuts, right? It just It's like a – just he wants to, he wants to just uh, to, to get at us. But uh, he was onto something, uh, it turns out, perhaps. But my mom – here's what's interesting. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee in, um, in 1954. My mom was born in Memphis, Tennessee in 1932. So 1932, it's possible – the, the worm environment of Memphis was not entirely cleaned up, being in the South. And it is a city, but I'd be better if I'd been born in, say, Tupelo, Mississippi, but, right. but I wasn't. So I was born in Memphis. But I'm pretty – I'm not very – I'm not allergic to many things. And it raises the possibility among thousands of other factors. But what your book reminds us of is that your mom and your grandmother and your father, but particularly your mom – they don't just pass on their genes. You know, you, you, we all understand that there's certain genetic advantages and disadvantages people have for health. That that a lot of these things that we're obsessed with, we're kind of stuck with because you know we want to fix them with exercise or diet. But genetics goes a long way toward explaining a lot of things about our likelihood of a heart attack or cancer, et cetera. But what your book points out is that it's so much more complicated than that because your whole microbial environment that you're born in and born with. And then you emerge from the womb with uh, depends a lot on your mom and, and your grandmother, yeah. and that's just that adds the complication level. It's a whole new level of complication. It's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the thing about the worms, I should point out, is that there are many organisms that apparently beneficially tweak our immune system. Parasites are just one. Parasites clearly have a cost. Maybe they have a benefit. But the promise of the research on the microbiota is that they can have that there are organisms that are all beneficial and that have no costs, and that those can be sort of leveraged to fix some of these problems. So growing up in Memphis, it may have been worms, it may not have been worms, it may have just been access to a healthier microbiota. Uh, it may, you know, and then there are also like certain microbes in particular, like Helicobacter pylori, which again have this sort of uh, good side and bad side. But many, most people who have Helicobacter pylori, which is associated with stomach cancer, uh, actually harbor it just fine. And it also seems to prevent some of these diseases from emerging, at least from, you know, from epidemiological and animal studies. 
So to go back to this question of what happens to mom, here, um, my book, what I'm talking about, converges with this really rapidly developing and supremely important field of epigenetics, where basically you, the signals that come from your mother that for the nine months that you spend in the womb are, are signals that shape how you develop. So that many of the predispositions to diseases that happen decades later seem to be set by the environment of your mom while she's pregnant and what's happening to your mom. And there are some sort of great historical sample, examples where, for example, the, in World War II in the Netherlands, there was this famine that struck, um, where there was a Nazi blockade. And the mothers who were pregnant then, they were able to track the, the children who were born to those mothers. And decades later, they had increased risk of basically, you know, the suite of Western diseases, which are, is, is heart disease, some cancers, diabetes, um, decades later, right? This was able, they were able to correlate this with, with this event and, and other events of famine uh, in China and uh, elsewhere. And of course, they can, they can do it with animals as well. So they, could, they sort of are able to show causation. And what happens? There are two things that happen. One, one thing is that the signals that are coming actually guide sort of things like brain development, uh, the signals that are coming from your mom. Um, they sort of, let's say, let's, since we're talking about the immune system, they in a sense, are training the immune system, giving a sense of what to expect. They're saying you need to turn this up a little bit, turn this down a little bit because X, Y, and Z is apparently, you know, got mom on, on guard. So you need to be ready as well. You know, so you can look at it as something that's supposed to be adaptive. Um, the problem is uh, it can be pushed out of an adaptive realm uh, or actually in the case that is like with infections, for example, infections, prenatal infections are a risk factor for many, many different problems um, from schizophrenia in the, in the, you know, decades later in the, in the offspring and the child uh, for autism, it increasingly seems, and also for asthma, very interestingly. So they, they, these different, these apparently different diseases that manifest in different periods of life all share this common risk factor of mom's immune system being activated to fight off a disease and that, uh, to fight an infection that during Dutch, pregnancy. Yeah, that Dutch um, hunger winter that you talk about, the, the idea there would be that because these moms were pregnant during a time when food was very scarce, the kids overprocess their food as they become adults and are more prone to obesity and metabolic syndrome. That's the claim, right? That's right. And they're, so epigenetic, so genes are fixed, but how you translate the genes into proteins and, 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 and hormones is obviously not fixed. You can turn it up or turn it down. That's what gets tweaked by mom's experience, right? So they're, they're, they're essentially prepared in utero, in the womb for a starvation situation. And what they come into, at least in Western Europe, after the war is over, is not a starvation situation. So the thinking is that it's a kind of mismatch for what they're prepared for um, epigenetically and what they encounter in a basically affluent country in the West, even though um, that wasn't immediately true after World War II, but eventually it was, um, and are very different things. So, they're, so they're, they, they are epigenetically maladapted to the current environment that they encounter, which so- – Let's step back a bit from this per, this particular example. The one of the things the book does uh, unintentionally, I think, is it the world's in some ways a more alarming place than you thought. Uh, you know, it's one thing when you see these 
pictures of what, say, your cell phone looks like or the uh, your bathroom. You know, if, when, if you could look at it under a microscope, it's just, and we're aware that there are these things under the surface that we can't see that make life sometimes not so good. And here we're saying, well, it may, a lot of these things make life actually some of the things we were afraid of that we couldn't see. Some of them maybe made life pretty good. What are the lessons for parenting and pregnancy? You talk a little bit about a book of what you've passed on to your daughter genetically and epigenetically, uh, or your wife has. Um, what are the lessons for, for pregnancy and parenting? Well, I mean, the truth is it isn't, I, it isn't to have an outhouse, I assume, right? That's, that's <laughs> right. But, but you can't help but think, Hey, you know, maybe we've gone too far to make the world so, so sterile. That, so there are two things that's happening. There is the direction science is pointing in which is sort of in a, in a figurative way towards an outhouse. Um, and then there's what you can actually recommend because it's been shown to work, which is basically nothing at this point. Um, so I'm really loathe to always make recommendations. The one thing you can do is eat well during pregnancy. And by eating well, so here's one area where the micro, with the stuff on the microbiota, um, that is our microbes, is turning out to be uh, very interesting and sort of, casting new light on things we always knew. I mean, we've known for a long time that the, the Mediterranean diet, or we seem to have known for a long time, the Mediterranean diet is, is, is healthier for a number of reasons, at least compared to um, the modern sort of processed high bad fat diet, let's say, processed food, high sugar, high unhealthy fat. Um, you had Gary Taubes on a while ago. Of course, the Mediterranean diet is not a low-fat diet. Um, I should point out, it's just full of beneficial fats and olive oil and fish and so on. Um, but anyways, the, the, the reason that the Mediterranean diet may be beneficial, it seems, that is the reason that a diet that's high in fiber, and this is soluble fiber, this is fiber that you can't digest, is that it feeds your healthy microbes. So you're actually selecting for better microbes by eating this kind of diet that contains stuff that you can't actually digest. Um, and that's one way that if you eat well during pregnancy, you're selecting for microbes, you're sort of tweaking your immune system into a more peaceful uh, state, into a more tolerant state. And that, that profile of tolerance is read by the developing fetus. So there is very limited, but there, it's interesting, but there is, there is some indication that people eat this kind of diet, have kids who have a lower chance of some of these diseases, of, of, of asthma, that is, uh, you know, of, of some of these allergic diseases. And it's simply because, at least in theory, that their immune system has learned something different while they were in the womb. Now, the other example of this, of course, is what's called the farm effect, which is that mothers who work on farms while they're pregnant, their kids seem to be very, very protected from allergy. The mechanism, no one's really quite sure what the mechanism is exactly. It may be just sort of you, you encounter like up to 10,000 times more microbes in a barn with cows and chickens than you do uh, in a house like mine in suburbia or the, you know, in, the, in East Bay of, of San Francisco Bay. Um, so you have this constant sort of microbial stimulation, not by pathogens, but by basically innocuous microbes. That works kind of like an immunotherapy that ends up training the developing fetus's immune system in a way that prevents allergic disease for them. Um, I, I smell a fad. Uh, well, that's the, the, the see, farm. The you know, you're pregnant. Come to our farm. For, come live here and and, and have right. a, you know. Okay, so but the, here's the caveat. Some studies suggest that if you just go once or twice to a farm. 
the opposite happens. What happens is, is that uh, because it's not chronic, because your immune system doesn't sort of recalibrate under the constant force of this of this microbial wind, as it's sometimes called, um, you treat it almost as an attack. And that's exactly what you don't want. Infections are bad during pregnancy, right? So that those kids may actually be more prone to, and you know, so like th- there are nuances here and that's why you can't make any recommendations yet. But what you can say is that in the future, when they figure out what's good for you and what's bad for you, treatment is going to start during pregnancy or maybe even before pregnancy. With the, with the parents, not just the mothers either. The mothers are most important because that's where you live basically for the first nine months of your life. But there's a bunch of, of, of evidence suggesting that, you know, fathers pass on some of their experiences as well epigenetically, you know, that genes are turned on and off in the, in the sperm. So this course, is, this again, an incredible example of how complex life is uh, and how complex the world is. And I was struck reading your book of by a quote that uh, – it's a Venetian proverb that Nassim Taleb uh, quotes, which is uh, – I forget how he translates it, but I, I, say, I call it the further from the shore, the deeper the water. So <laughs> you, know, you think you're getting you know, to the – you think you're learning more and more, and we know more about the human experience than, than our predecessors by an enormous amount. But it turns out to be extremely complicated. Uh, let's you, – you told me before we started taping that you're reading Anti-Fragile. Right. What parallels do you see with his work in this, this phenomena, these phenomena? He talks a lot about uh, hormesis, which is this idea that certain stresses in the right amount, and I would also add at the right time in development, actually make you stronger rather than making you weak. Uh, he talks about it in the context of exposure to risk, um, you know, to, to, uh, if I understand correctly, That's to, right. you know, small collapses, you're exposing yourself to small vulnerabilities and small fluctuations so that you are much more ready for the large fluctuation that's coming anyways. Well, you put um, out, if you put out every, if you put out every fire, cause you think fire is bad, you're going to eventually get a conflagration you can't put that's out. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, it's sometimes better to have a lot of little fires. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we accept this idea in the field of physical health, no problem, which is that daily or, you know, semi-daily exercise is necessary just to sort of be healthy, you know? So you need to con- to have this, you need to go for a jog 30 minutes, three times a week, say, uh, because that, that stress actually improves how your circulatory system works. It strengthens your bones. Uh, it, it strengthens your muscles. It, it leads to neurogenesis. You know, your neurons actually are generated while you exercise. It's beneficial and it, it helps you maintain homeostasis. It helps you keep your balance equilibrium in daily life. Now, the same is apparently true of the immune system. The problem is the immune system has basically been hidden from view. So we haven't realized it. Um, but apparently the same thing is true, which is that our immune system needs certain certain influx, certain uh, stimuli that are evolutionarily determined because they've just simply always been there. We sort of expect them and that we need them especially early in life. And again, the, the parallel example that for the early in life, uh, the importance of early life is simply brain, is brain development. I mean, there's just a wealth of studies now on, on how early life, you know, just the lack of sort of physical contact, the lack of a nurturing bond with a caregiver ends up having these lifelong consequences for children. Um, so anyways, your immune system needs something like that too. Uh, and 
in this case, it's certain microbes, perhaps a few parasites. They're still figuring it out. But really, it's not that surprising that these rules apply to your immune system because your immune system is basically an adaptive organ, the same way your brain is, same way your body at large is. Um, it's, it needs input from the very thing it's meant to adapt to. Otherwise, it's sort of just ne- it's never going to be developed properly. It's going to be malformed. It's going to end up atrophied. And that's what that atrophy leads to uh, autoimmune allergic diseases. It's sort of like it loses its bearings. It doesn't know what's enemies. It doesn't know what's, what's a friend. And these diseases are not trivial at all. They cause immense suffering. They cost lots and lots of money. Each generation seems to be more and more prone to these diseases now. I mean, inflammatory bowel disease used to be something you'd get as a young, as a young adult. And now kids, there's pediatric inflammatory bowel disease uh, the same thing with these nut allergies. I mean, they're very, very, they're serious. I don't, I don't think that they're trivial at all. Um, so figuring this out is of great importance. My guest today has been Moises Velasquez-Manoff. His book is An Epidemic of Absence. Moises, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>